Let's join together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you about the excitement that we have as we open your word. We've asked you to speak to us. You've already spoken. But now through your Holy Spirit, we ask that he would take that word and so impress that on our hearts and minds that we'll be different people when we react to it, both after this service but for the rest of our lives because your word has the power to make those kind of changes. Help us to be encouraged and at the same time to be challenged. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go together to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, some very exciting and encouraging words for us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We're going to be taking a look at what the grace of God gives to us. And God's grace never slows down. Beginning with verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. For 10 verses in Titus chapter 2, all of us of every age have been given instructions in Christian living. Nobody's been left out. The older men were specifically addressed, so were the older women who were to teach some of the things that they've learned to the younger women. The younger men were also identified. Bond servants were identified. And now it's all of us. All of us are in view. And you'll notice the first word in verse 11 is the word for. It really is introducing the basis for all the instructions we've seen throughout the rest of the chapter. A doctrinal explanation follows. It gives the reason for all of those ethical instructions that we've already been given in these first 10 verses. And if you have an NIV study Bible, there's a study note that says right conduct must be based on right doctrine. And that's what this is all about. Coming out of proper teaching is the right way to live. In other words, here's how we're supposed to act, and here's why we're supposed to act that way. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says almost the same thing. Christian conduct must be grounded in and motivated by Christian truth. So emerging from God's Word, from God's teaching, is a right way for all of us to be living. We never have to wonder what that is. It's here for us completely. It's the grace of God that saves us and also enables us to live the way we're supposed to. We can't, even though it sounds good, we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, we can't do that in and of ourselves. We can't live the Christian life apart from grace. Our best intentions, we can't do it by them either. Our most sincere resolutions, now that doesn't work either. But we can do it. You know that verse that says, I can do all things? 
Is there a period at the end of things? I can do all things through. Some of our translations say Christ. Some of them say him, but it is Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's where the grace of God comes in. That's the grace of God that keeps giving. It helps us to be able to live that Christian life, and it makes it possible for us to do it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That word appeared, if you notice that in the Greek language, it's ephane. Ephane, can you think of an English word that comes from there? Yeah, epiphany. Some of you are sharp this morning. Must be the weather. Now you're sharp all the time. We get the word epiphany from that. It means to become visible. It means to make an appearance. Carries the idea of grace suddenly breaking in on our moral darkness. All of a sudden, there it is. We're one way. We're in the dark, and now grace is there all of a sudden, shining brightly. That's what this word means. And that's what it means when it says the grace of God has appeared. But what has it done for us once it appeared? Well, that's the the substance of the message this morning, because grace gives. What has it given us? And grace has given us, first of all, it says salvation for all people. Salvation for all people. Now, please understand, that doesn't teach that everyone is saved and everyone is going to be saved. There are those that use this as a proof text to teach universal salvation. They'll say the Bible teaches that everybody is saved because, after all, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But it's clear from the Scriptures, and incidentally, there's no better commentary anywhere than the Scriptures, the best commentary on itself. So we compare Scripture with Scripture. We understand the teaching. We understand what this means in the context of all of the rest of the Scriptures. So it's clear from the Scriptures that only those that by faith receive God's gift of grace will be saved. The offer of that grace is to whoever whoever calls on the name of the Lord. So whoever by faith calls on the name of the Lord will receive that grace. It's not automatic. It's not for everybody, but it's by faith. The Scripture makes it very, very clear. So the offer of salvation is to everyone, but only those who receive His grace are saved, and no one will be saved apart from His grace. Here we in one sense, see the incarnation of the Lord Jesus as well. We see his incarnation because grace appeared. Grace has always been with us. God's grace has been with us. But all of a sudden, the embodiment of that grace appeared. There it was in the person of the Lord Jesus himself. So salvation for all people is in view. What is God's grace that brought that salvation? And some of you have heard this many, many times. God's grace is his free favor. It's what he gives to us that's totally undeserved. None of us has ever worked for it. Nobody has ever earned his grace. It is totally a gift. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. God takes the initiative to save us. God takes the initiative to transform us. Salvation is his gift to us. And you've seen the acronym many, many times. Some of you have God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. God's riches, and obviously he is lavishly wealthy, but God gives us those riches, but it's 
free for us, but it wasn't free for Christ. It was at his expense. He paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. That's what God's grace is all about. We define it sometimes as unmerited favor. Let's illustrate grace by looking at the life of a particular person. I don't know if you recognize that name. You're probably thinking somebody that's a little older. That's um, probably not somebody that, that dresses and looks that way today. Well, the year is 1748. A trading ship departs from an island off the west coast of Africa headed for England. Aboard, some of you know this already, aboard is John Newton, a seaman with a reputation for profane language and ungodly living and being involved in the horrible slave trade. As he later described it on this particular voyage, the captain would often tell me that to his grief, he had a Jonah on board that a curse attended me wherever I went, and that all the troubles he met in that voyage were owing to his having taken me into the vessel. So here's the captain of the ship telling John Newton, we are cursed. Everything that's going wrong, and a lot was going wrong, is because of you. You're a more modern-day Jonah. And in fact, the captain may have been right. Newton had earlier turned his back on God. But just as a storm had threatened to destroy that boat bearing Jonah, so too a fierce Atlantic wind rudely awakened John Newton. The vessel nearly broke apart. As the damaged ship drifted at sea, Newton prayed for God's mercy and put his faith in Jesus. That's how a blasphemous, disreputable seaman became by God's grace the godly penman of the words of that beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton is remembered for his hymn, Amazing Grace. In his later years, he often lost his memory in the pulpit. Can you imagine that? He'd be standing up in the pulpit, and they would have to remind him of what he was speaking about. That's never happened with me, has it? <laughs> yeah, every other week, but I... not thanks, not yet. Okay, so I'm, I'm still safe. But here's what he would often say when in the middle of his preaching he would totally lose it and somebody would put him back on track. He said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. He could remember those two things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Would you do me this favor, even though some of you say, I know this so well. And incidentally, there's a picture of the, the, the ship like that he was on during this occasion. And his quote, my memory nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and that Jesus is a great savior. But would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, you could quote, 80% of you could quote these two verses, but I'd love for you to be able to see these verses in their context You read in verse 5, the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches 
of his grace. He has all those riches. We can't even measure them. And he wants to give them to us in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember, there's not universal salvation. It has to be accompanied by faith. So by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now we've heard that many, many times. We've heard about John Newton probably many, many times. But this is God's grace, and we're told clearly, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, or at least the possibility of salvation for everybody who by faith would receive that. I think we kind of have to sing that hymn right now, don't we? We, we kind of have to. Okay, 202. <clears throat> would somebody help me out with a hymn book? Oh, never mind. I got it. Thanks. 202. <clears throat> I hope our best singers are ready to help out. And in Dr. I style, let's sing verses 1, 2, and 5. When we come to verse 5, when we've been there, it says 10,000 years. Will you humor me and sing 10 billion years? We'll learn a little bit about eternity. When we've been there 10 billion years. Uh, how many of you are going to remember that? I don't promise, but okay. Well, by the time we get there, we'll see how that goes. Better singers, are you ready to help the rest of us out? Ready? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Verse 2. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed In verse 5 When we've been there ten billion years Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. I could tell that some of us were identifying very, very much with that wretch in that song, and it wasn't John Newton, was it? Saved a wretch like me. How many of you have 
never gotten in an examination in school anything less than an A. You've never gotten anything less than an A. You've gotten an A on every exam you've ever taken in school. <laughs> Anybody over in the nursery? <laughs> Someone writes, in the spring of 2002, I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time before my final exam in the youth ministry class at Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. When I got to class, everybody was doing their last-minute studying. The teacher came in and said he would review with us before the test. Most of his review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing that I had never heard. When questioned about it, he said they were in the book and we were responsible for everything in the book. We couldn't argue with that. Finally, it was time to take the test. Leave them face down on the desk until everyone has one, and I'll tell you to start, our professor, Dr. Tom Hufty, instructed. When we turned them over to my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. The bottom of the last page said, This is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you to get the A. You have just experienced grace. Dr. Hufty then went around the room and asked each student individually, What is your grade? Do you deserve the grade you are receiving? How much did all your studying for this exam help you achieve your final grade? Then he said, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience. You've just experienced grace. One hundred years from now, or one billion years from now, If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your name will be written down in a book and you will have had nothing to do with writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. I know everybody would say, I wish I had had Dr. Hufty. (laughs) We've got better than Dr. Hufty. We've got a God who gives us grace all the time. What else does the grace of God give us besides salvation? In this text, it tells us, if you look again at verses 12 through 14, tells us that grace gives us training. Grace gives us training. It actually teaches us. The word for trains has to do with the training of a child. Grace teaches then. It encourages. It disciplines. It disciples. It educates It nurtures. It does the things that are supposed to be done for children by the people that love them. It surrounds us with what we need to learn. Well, what does it teach us? What does it train us specifically? And from this text, it says, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The NIV says, it teaches us to say no to those things. Just Say no. That's what it teaches us. That's what what grace is involved in our lives. It teaches us to say no. And we probably thought Nancy Reagan is the one that came up with that slogan, just say no. 
That was the concept and the slogan, an advertising campaign, part of the U.S. war on drugs. It was prevalent during the 1980s and the early 1990s, and Nancy Reagan is given credit with coining that expression. But grace has been teaching us that same thing all along. Just say no. Say no to what? Once again, it's to ungodliness and to worldly passions. We know what those expressions mean. We know what ungodliness is. It's anything that goes against what God teaches us in His Word. There are many ungodly things that we do that the Lord Jesus died to save us from. Worldly passions. Worldly meaning, again, apart from what God would have. Apart from what He tells us in His Word. We are able to say no to what sometimes we are told we can't say no to. But with grace... We can say no. Grace teaches us to say no, and that means we aren't helpless victims of sins and habits and addictions and weaknesses and vices. God's grace teaches us to say no. That means we're capable of saying no. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Because today, all around us, we're told so many times that we're hopeless You'll never get out of that nasty trap that you're in. You can't do that. You can't do that without all kinds of other things, and even then, you will never, ever be able to get out from that bondage. Our society has produced a generation of people that think there's no remedy for what ails them. And what ails them when they make choices that are bad choices, they're told that's a disease. You can't help a disease. Just say no, it says in the Scripture. I'm not discounting the need for therapy at times or for medicine and that sort of thing, but I am saying this, it is not hopeless. Grace trains us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Again, society says you're incapable of being delivered or spared that compulsion that you have. The good news is society is wrong. But here's some bad news. That means forget the excuses. Forget the excuses. You are not bound in whatever it is that you think is holding you and you'll never get out of. Stop playing the victim. Put away the resignation that you will always be that way. You can't help it. You're hopeless. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Say no. Say it with God's help. Pay attention to the teaching and the nurture of God's grace. Let me ask you to turn with me to a couple passages. One of them is in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 12. What do we have to do when we've got tough decisions, when we're living life, and we've got things that we've got to do? Well, we, we pray as if it's entirely up to God, but we work as if it's entirely up to us. We don't just fall back and say, I, I can't do anything about this. Notice in verse 12, Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. It's like a math problem. You've got to work it out. And so with regard to that, it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. That doesn't mean you've got to stop working. God works in you both to will he gives you the gives you the desire to do that and to work for his good pleasure so we're not working for our salvation but we're working it out we're not just saying well god you're going to have to do something about it i'm not going to do anything about it we work as if it's entirely up to us but we pray as if it's entirely up to god and there's teamwork that is going on there uh one book forward if you go to colossians chapter 1 verse 29 Colossians 1.29, the Apostle Paul says, and one of the things he's trying to do is present mature people in the Lord Jesus. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil, I work, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. It's a cooperative effort. And we're not hopeless. We can do all things through Christ, but we work along with Him when that happens. We're to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and at the same time, we are to say yes to three things, three ways of living that are here in this text before us. Grace is training us, just like we're little kids. It keeps training us to live in certain ways in the here and now. One of the ways in which we're supposed to live, we're supposed to live self-controlled. You'll notice there's some verses that I put on the screen and on the outline. This is the fifth time we've seen this word self-control, and we're only in the second chapter of Titus. Fifth time. Chapter 1, verse 8, the overseers were told to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 2, the older men were to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 5, the young women were to be self-controlled, and they were to be taught that by the older women who ostensibly would have that self-control before they could teach it. In verse 6 of chapter 2, the younger men were to be self-controlled, and now all of us are called to be self-controlled. We haven't defined the word since January 29th. So since it's been that long ago, let me define it once again. It means curbing one's desires and impulses possessing self-mastery in thought and judgment. It's self-control. It's another word for spirit control, though, because we've got that cooperative effort going on. The word picture that I tried to draw was it is being able to put the brakes on or shift to a lower gear when our selfish desires and appetites are stepping on the gas pedal. In other words, our ungodliness and worldly passions, those very things that we're told to say no to. When they're urging us on, self-control says, no, uh, this is the opposite way we're going to go. It means being the master, not the slave to those worldly passions. It's not enough to just say no. We always have to replace the bad with something good. We can't leave ourselves in that vacuum. Something worse may replace the bad. So we just say no. An example, and this is one that comes to my mind very, very often. When it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, do not be anxious about anything. And a lot of people would say, well, I can't help it. I worry all the time. I worry about my kids. I worry about my health. I worry about the finance. I worry about, I can't help it. I'm human. 
Well, it says, do not be anxious about anything. Does that mean you can turn a switch and it's gone? You can just say to yourself, okay, why didn't you tell me that before? Would have saved me an awful lot of trouble. But it goes on to replace that with something positive. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and with petition, make your requests be made known to God. And it says, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So we replace something bad with something good. And that's the same thing that we're going to be trying to do. Not leave ourselves in a vacuum. We're not just saying no. We're saying yes to some other things. Let's get rid of some of these things and replace them with some things that are better. And one of them is to be self-controlled. The other, we are to live upright, it says. That's also back in chapter 1, verse 8. It's from a Greek word that means equitable or fair or innocent or holy, and it's used 81 times in the New Testament. So we're getting rid of ungodliness and worldly passions, and we're replacing them so far with self-control, living uprightly, and then we are to live godly lives in this present age, the here and now live godly lives. And obviously that's a good substitute for when we renounce ungodly and ungodliness and worldly passions. Someone has coined three directions that help us to think about these three things that you see on the screen right now. The self-control, the uprightness, and the godly lives. Three directions, provided we don't press this analogy too far, but inward is self-control. That's the direction we look inward for self-control. We look outward to live upright, and we look upward to live godly lives. Well, what else does the grace of God give us? Salvation, training, teaching, nurture, but also hope. If you look at verses 13 and 14, uh, this great hope. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if we look at what we have in this text, we've renounced the sinful past. We've said no to the sinful past. We're living disciplined lives in the present. And you'll notice it says in the present age. We're living those disciplined lives, self-controlled, upright, and godly. And we're looking eagerly for the future. So if you notice, past, present, future tenses are all involved there. All those tenses have been taken care of. And so I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I mean this. So why are we so tense all the time? If all the tenses are taken care of, why don't we live that particular way? We've got the blessed hope of the return of the Lord Jesus that every time we wake up in the morning, we can ask ourselves the question, is Jesus coming back today? Is this the day? Is it the crowning day? Is this the day that the Lord Jesus is coming back for us? It says we're waiting for the blessed hope. Waiting carries with it the idea of longing, 
carries with it the idea of being eager and having a certain expectation. It's not a wishful hope. It's a certainty. The only thing that is unknown is the when. It is absolutely certain that it will happen. I'd like to make some observations. If you glance again at that text, verses 13 and 14, you'll see each of these observations jumping out from those two verses. First of all, it is a blessed hope. It fuels our happiness. It fuels our joy. But it is the hope of the rapture of the Lord Jesus, not the hope of the tribulation. If you've been with us on Sunday nights as we're studying the book of Revelation, we teach and we believe that the Lord Jesus is coming back for the church, for those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus. He's coming back for us before this awful tribulation period. What kind of blessed hope would there be if we were waiting for that awful tribulation period to come next? If you join with us tonight, we're going to be seeing the first four of the trumpet judgments. We've already seen six seal judgments. We're going to open the seventh seal, and out of it are going to emerge four trumpet judgments tonight. It gets worse and worse and worse. It is absolutely horrible what's going to happen on this planet one day. It is not a blessed hope to say, hey, I can't wait to be a part of that tribulation. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's why that hope is blessed. Also, as I mentioned, it is certain. By definition, it is a certain expectation. And again, if you're glancing at verses 13 and 14, you'll see where it says Jesus is great. You'll also see where it says Jesus is God. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, and they both refer to Jesus Christ. The divinity of Christ, if there was no verse anywhere else in the Scriptures, and there are many, this would clearly say Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. God's coming back for us one day. Tells us here that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us out of the marketplace of sin, and then to set us free. He got rid of the bad, it says, all wickedness, and purified us for the good. And it tells us we are Jesus' very own. We are peculiarly his. We are uniquely his. We belong to him. And then it says we are eager to do good. Here we have that notion that Christians are a bunch of do-gooders. You know what? That's right, we are. That's what we're supposed to be. That's not an insult. You're just a bunch of do-gooders. That's part of what we're called to do. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 1. We're we're back in Titus. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them, it says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those good works don't save us, but they are the marks of a saved one. That's what we're doing. Look at verse 14. It's three times in chapter 3 that we're looking ahead to. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. 
so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we're called to that. And all of this is in this text before us in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We're eager for that. We're zealous for that. So we come to a summary in verse 15. It talks about these things. It's talking to Titus. And it goes back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. By the time we get to verse 15, those specifics have been mentioned. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So all the instructions in the chapter are in view and summarized in verse 15. These are the things you're supposed to declare or teach. Remember what goes along with child training. And exhort and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody despise you. Don't let anyone look down on you. Don't let anyone, literally it means disregard or depreciate you because this is God's Word and this is where the authority comes. So don't let anybody downgrade you as long as you're staying true to that Word. These things, that expression, must be important if he's told don't let anybody try to dissuade you from the things you're supposed to be teaching. Now, I want us, as we close, to think about one more time. We're thinking about grace because all of this is the result of what grace gives. Grace gives us salvation. It gives us training. It gives us hope. It gives us the hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Francesca Renderos, 22, was working as a waitress on an ordinary Wednesday night in Houston when she was stunned by grace. At one of her tables sat Doug Brown, a mortgage broker, trying to attract the business of six female real estate agents. When Francesca came up to the table, Doug asked, what would be the most special tip you could have? A pair of shoes? A purse? She responded, no, I need a car. (laughs) Doug looked around his table at the six real estate agents and said, if you will give me your business, I will give this girl a car. The six women agreed. So he turned to Francesca and said, okay, you get a car. Her response, sure. What do you want to drink? She didn't believe it until an hour later, a brand new silver Mitsubishi Lancer pulled up and Doug Brown gave her the keys. Francesca could hardly contain herself. Is this happening? What do I say? What do I do? Doug Brown gave her the words. You say, These keys are mine. That's grace, maybe. That's human grace, because it had an ulterior motive. God's grace is lavished on us, and it's for our sake. And he just keeps giving it and giving it and giving it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for lavishing your grace on us. Thank you that your grace appeared abruptly, dynamically in the person of the Lord Jesus 
bringing salvation for all people. But thank you that your grace existed long before that. Your grace will always exist. But thank you for that. And thank you for the training that we get. And thank you that we get that hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And help us, as you told Titus in your word, to declare these things, to exhort and rebuke with all authority, and not let anyone disregard us because we stand on the authority of your word in teaching these things. And thanking you for that authority and thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen.